0: Okay, Before uh, we jump into our our passage this morning in the sermon, the way we begin uh, every every Sunday morning uh, with the passage is we talk to our young ones, we talk to our kids. Kids, uh, if I can have your attention, because this is really important. Kids, we want you in the service with us because Jesus wants you in the service with us. We know that from things like today what we're going to see where Jesus uh, goes to heal this little 12-year-old girl, to heal her, raise her from the dead. So, uh, Jesus doesn't just love adults. Kids, you need to know that, that he loves you and he is for you. So, if you would, kids, just play a little, uh, uh, enter into this story with me, okay? Imagine you, let's say, uh, imagine you are on a vacation, you're off with family and friends, and you go into the woods, there's woods nearby, and you go on a hike with some friends into the woods. Not gonna go far, but you're just off in the woods, it's a beautiful day like today, it's just awesome, and you're on a hike and you come to an old, rickety, super old, gnarly bridge, okay? You've got to cross this, like, gorge. Like, there's this big drop-off, uh, and, and there's this bridge, and you guys are sitting there, and you're like, I don't know, should we, should we cross that? It doesn't look safe. It looks really dangerous. And then all of a sudden, you hear behind you this loud roar. You're just, and you, and you turn around, and there is a cougar. There's a cougar. There's a lion. It starts chasing you. Like, full, like, just full on scene, and you're sitting there, and the only thing you can do to escape, there's no escape, except what? What can you do? The bridge. You have a decision to make. And you, trying to figure things out, you're remaining calm, you're remaining calm, you look, your two other friends, they're bigger than you and they're older than you, they freak out, and they run across the bridge. And you're sitting there watching, are they going to live? Are they going to fall and die? Are they going to live? And you see the cougar. Are they going to live and fall and die? You see the cougar. And you're sitting there, you're taking all of it in, and you see that they get across safely. What are you going to do, kids? I mean, let's take this individually. Are you going to stay and fight the cougar, or are you going to cross the bridge? Who's for the bridge? Hands Okay, those that aren't raising their hands, you're staying back to fight the cougar? Okay. Okay, so let's say you cross that bridge. You do the right thing and you cross that bridge. Okay, here's my question Uh, How much faith do you need to cross that bridge? Sanders, like, that is so. Sanders just said, just a little bit. And that's true. You don't have to cross it like, yeah, I know this bridge is okay. And you're like, you're not doing that. You may be like, huh, 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 you know, freaking out as you're crying. You just need a little faith to get on that bridge, to get away from what is coming at you. Y'all, it's like that with Jesus. That's what we're going to look at a miracle story today. We're going to look at actually a couple miracles uh, that Jesus performed. And we're going to ask, like, how much faith do you have to have to come to Jesus and be saved? And the answer is, you don't have to have much. Because does it, here's the big question of the day, kids. Does your faith save you? This is kind of like a trick question. This is what we ask new ministers when they're coming up. They're like, I want to be a minister. We test them. Does your faith save you? Kids, what do you think? Yes? What could you, could you say? What if I told you, no, your faith doesn't save you? Then what does save you? Jesus, God. It's your faith in God. It's not the strength of your faith, like how much do I believe in Jesus? Oh, my faith is so strong, and that's what saves me. That's not what saves you. What saves you is the one you're believing in. It's not your faith. It's what we call the object of your faith and how strong he is that saves you. So you can have strong faith, you can also have really, 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 really weak faith. You can, you can say like, I think my faith is just the worst. I think it's really, really weak. Uh, that's okay because you are not saved on how strong your faith is. You're saved on how strong the one you're believing in is, Jesus. You're saved because you believe, man, Jesus, what he did, he lived for me, he died for me, he was raised for me. I, I, I will trust him as best I can. I'll try and try and try and keep believing. Jesus saves you, and your faith, Jesus, is the bridge. Your faith just gets you on that bridge, just connects you to Jesus, the one who saves you. Does that make sense? That's what we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection for us, the only thing that can save us, but the thing is you do got to believe in him. You do have to take that step of faith and put your trust in him. We're in the Gospel of Mark this fall. It's normally assumed the Gospels are, that they're all organized linearly, chronologically, just, you know, beginning to end, this is what Jesus did, and this day, and then this day, and then this week, and next week, and there is that basic chronology of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, uh, everything leading up to the cross and afterwards, but uh, each Gospel has a specific literary pattern to it, that each Gospel writer has a technique, a storytelling technique, and we're looking at Mark's, Storytelling technique, which is uh, it's this wonderful mosaic of Jesus that he's giving us. He starts out with an initiation story, a kind of a collage of everything to expect, and then he gets into, gets us into conflict stories because that's really what Jesus brings is conflict. And then he tells us all these parables that uh, have everything to do with this conflict because they push people away, they bring people in, and then you get to the miracle stories of Jesus. That's where we are today. These miracle stories in chapters 4 and 5 of Mark, uh, we're going to be focused on one story in particular that has two miracles in it. Mark chapter 5, please stand for the reading of God's word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, He fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, "'Who touched my garments?' And his disciples said to him, "'You see the crowd pressing around you, "'and yet you say, who touched me?' And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, "'Daughter, your faith has made you well. "'Go in peace and be healed of your disease.'" why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Please be seated. So, uh, you know, this you got to have this context because we didn't do the miracle right before this, but the passage begins when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. What happened was the night before, what happens right here, Jesus had been in Gentile country, healing a Gentile, a demon-possessed man who was a total outcast who lived in a cave, in a graveyard, and Jesus had just exorcised a legion of demons out of this guy. I mean, it's much more of a Halloween, modern Halloween miracle story. But now on the other side of the lake, Jesus meets and helps Jairus, a Jewish religious leader who is a synagogue official, very well-respected religious leader, very pious, very wealthy. And so here's an application for us right at the beginning, kind of a so what to get us into the context here. It is super easy. Because it's super popular, to talk about the disparity between the rich and the poor and to discriminate against both. It's easy and fun to discriminate against the poor because they're the undesirables of society. It's easy and fun to discriminate against the rich because they're the undesirables of society. It's, it, it's it, like you can, you can hear the poor is suffering and you can think, pick yourself up like you're not a victim and you can hear the rich uh, is suffering and you can think you know cry me a river uh, probably getting what you deserve but it has been said that the great equalizer between rich and poor is death because it does not matter how much money you have when your child is dying the pain is just is too much to bear And Jairus' only child, his young 12-year-old daughter, is on her deathbed, and she is dying. Whether you are rich, or you are poor, or you are somewhere in between, our problem is the same. It is sin and death, and our need of Jesus is the same. But that Jairus recognizes his need of Jesus, it is curious when when because it raises that question of when did jairus come to faith because back in chapter three <clears throat> in, in, in chapter three the jewish religious leaders they have already said to jesus in front of the crowd they've said this to the crowd that jesus is possessed by the devil that's how he's performing all of these miracles and Jairus, being a synagogue ruler at this point, it means, up until this point, he has not professed faith in Jesus because that would have cost him his job. You cannot contradict the Pharisees, the scribes, and expect to keep your job in the synagogue and keep your official status. Like, if, if, if your bosses have already declared, this is how it is with this guy, you've gotta to toe that line. So when Jairus comes to Jesus and he falls at his feet, He's not not risking everything. Uh, He he is throwing it all away. Uh, his, His job, his standing, his reputation, his security, because he is desperate. And in desperation, bowing before the one, his superiors call a spawn of Satan, and he pleads with Jesus to heal his daughter. It is a weak faith. It is a desperate faith and Jesus responds to it. And then, <laughs> immediately, Jairus's weak, desperate faith gets tested. Immediately. Because the crowd has gotten bigger. They've got Jesus surrounded. And, and so it looks like an ambulance inching along in bumper-to-bumper traffic on, on the way, you know, in this desperate situation, trying to get where they're going. And then Jesus stops. He just stops in the middle of all of this. He turns around and he says, Ooh, who touched me? And his disciples trying to do crowd control. They look at him and they're like, wait, what's wrong? What's wrong? Who touched who touched you? Who? What? Like there's this total confusion for a moment of like, wait, what just happened? What are we talking about? And what just happened was there was a woman in the crowd who was not supposed to be in that crowd. This is a very sick woman. She's been hemorrhaging for the past 12 years passing blood constantly, which is physically and emotionally very weakening. She, she would have had anemia, uh, difficulty breathing, weight loss. She would have had loss of energy. She would have had a compromised immune system. And her condition is getting worse, it says. And it says that her doctors could not help her, that she'd spent everything on her medical care, and now she is broke. And it gets worse. Because Israel had all these ceremonial religious laws and regulations that said, if you were diseased or if you had running sores or or, or if you had touched someone who was dead or you had this woman's affliction, then you were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. So no one could touch her. She couldn't touch anyone else or they would become unclean. And they would have to go through a long, costly, involved ritual ordeal to get clean. She was sick in a society that believed that if you were chronically sick, it meant you were cursed. So she's socially isolated. There are all these social restrictions on where she can go, where she can't go. As in, like, she would not have been super familiar with this guy, Jairus, because she was not allowed in the synagogue on the Sabbath. She was not allowed uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. She would not have been allowed uh, around to anyone, not family, not friends. She was alone. She is like a leper. And, and we hear all this, and it should break your heart. Uh, and, and, and then it, it gets to this point where it's, it's really easy to frown on such a society that would treat someone suffering and in such need like this, like unclean, unclean, unclean. You know, stay away, and, and, you know, we can talk COVID. We've been there, okay, COVID, but, but we don't even have to go to COVID just like, this is like, okay, easy to frown, but this can be a regular experience for us too. Um, I'll throw myself under the bus. Last year I was on a plane, uh, boarded, waiting for the last few passengers to board, uh, as in like, let's let's go, let's go, let's go, and I, heard, I, I happened to just turn around and see this. Uh, at, the, at the exact moment, I turn around, a little girl, just two rows back, in the aisle, just loses it all. Just gets sick right there in the aisle on the floor. And my immediate thought was, poor thing. And then my next immediate thought when I remembered where we were was, seriously. Now we're going to have to deboard. We're gonna have to get off this plane. We're either gonna have to wait for a new one or we're gonna have to wait for them to clean this one. We're gonna be late. Great little girl. And I said that to her. No, I did not say that to her. Worse, though, is we just sat there. Like, they did not debord us. We just sat there, and we waited and waited and waited, and the smell is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And you know when you're sitting there boarding, they, turn, they don't turn on the AC, so it's just getting hotter and hotter, and the smell is getting worse and worse. Uh, and we wait there for 45 minutes for the cleaning crew to show up, and finally the cleaning crew shows up, a.k.a. one young girl, like, in her 20s. And she's sitting there, like, on the floor, uh, cleaning this unclean mess. And then 20 minutes later, it's cleaned, and some big airport official gets on the plane, goes up to this little girl and her family, and tells her that she has to get off because she is unclean, not fit to fly with us clean people. He didn't use that language, but that's basically what he told her. Uh, of, you have to get off, and it's so, it's, it's so sad, because they made her sit there and watch, and her family sit there and watch them clean this stuff up. Then they kicked them off, it was, it was terrible. And you're also like, okay, hurry up, get off. Get off, little girl. It's terrible. You know, unclean, unclean, I got to go. Uh, okay, that is a taste of the daily experience of this woman. A, a fraction of the horror and shame and loneliness and ridicule that this woman is going through. So when she hears Jesus has come, in desperation she goes for him. And she has to sneak. She has to sneak. And so she sneaks through the crowd. She sneaks up behind Jesus, desperately hoping that if she can just touch his clothes, she'll be healed. And it works. She is completely healed. She can feel it immediately. She knows it. And she knows that she's not out of the woods. Because now she's got to sneak out of there. Uh, if anyone realizes who she is, if anyone realizes what just happened, finds out about this miracle, she's thinking that she is going to be in real trouble because sneaking in to get this miracle means she had to touch a ton of people in the crowd, making them all unclean. And if they found out, the crowd finds out, not only have they, has she made a lot of them unclean, If she just made Jesus unclean too by touching him, the crowd is going to hurt this woman. And she does not get far before Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And it's not, Jesus, it's not, he's dazed, it's not, he's confused from his power being spent. He's looking at the back of the woman's head. And when he says, who touched me, it's like, who touched me? You, stop. He's not talking to his disciples who are like, what, what are you talking about? What is going on? He's not talking to the crowd. He's talking to the woman. And then here, too, seemingly weak faith, she could just keep sne- she could just keep walking. But she turns, risking the wrath of the crowd and the wrath of Jesus for exposing them all to her uncleanness. And she outs herself to the crowd. She outs herself to Jesus. And it says, visibly trembling with fear. She comes to Jesus, falls before him and confesses everything. And Jesus calls her daughter. It says that her faith has saved her, not just physically, but spiritually. Like her faith has saved her forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Faith in Jesus. Side note here, just for a second. I hate interruptions. I, I've got a plan for my day and how dare anyone except myself with my own distractions, anyone attempt to interrupt it. But if they dare do it, I can't allow it because I'm too busy being too important. Yes, uh, Jesus, here, and then here's Jesus who lets himself get, get interrupted all the time. And if Jesus is God and he is Lord of your life, those interruptions in my life, those interruptions in your life, interruptions, they aren't interruptions from Jesus's perspective of your life. This woman is not an interruption. And you contrast rich and poor again. Jesus stops for a socially marginal, unclean, poor woman. If Jesus had just gone to Jairus, if he if he had just gone to the powerful the famous, the achievers of the ancient Near East, we would never, never think Jesus was for us or that we would be someone he could love. Because we are, we, even, even though there are people who believe it, uh, uh, those of us who struggle with it, we're always trying to look inside, to fi- in, inside ourselves to find something that God might find attractive. And then we see nothing or we just can't look at it. And we constantly lie to ourselves that, yeah, I'm good enough, I'm good enough, I'm good enough. If you're honest enough with yourself, you see nothing and you freak out. There's nothing inside of you that God is like, oh yeah, that's why I love you. Because the truth is that we, we're actually much dirtier uh, and much worse than we think we are. And Jesus is for you. Jesus is for everybody and he is for nobodies. For everyone in need, even those who are in need who don't look like they're in need on the outside. For people like Jairus, too. So, what about Jairus? Like, what about his little daughter who is dying? You have to put yourself in Jairus's shoes while all this is happening. Jesus stopping, confronting the woman, the woman approaching Jesus, outing herself, the woman recounting her whole story there to Jesus. Jesus then stopping and blessing her. Jairus is counting seconds. He's counting the minutes. He's looking at his watch. He's nodding his head. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. The stress, the anxiety, the the panic, the fear, it is building, it is building. And then finally, okay, Jesus is finally ready to go. You ready to go? Okay, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. Everybody move, move. And they turn for Jairus' house, and someone comes up immediately and says, stop it's it's too late your daughter she's dead and just the the, uh, the 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 utter horror of it you know in that moment his heart is totally breaking all hope gone his weak faith being tested immediately it is failing now and you know that because Jesus says to him in that moment, he looks at him and he says, do not be afraid. Only believe. The ESV says only believe, which it's fine, but to really capture the Greek and the perspective of the tense of this verb, Jesus is saying to him, don't be afraid. Keep believing. Like, you've started to believe in me. Don't stop now in the face of death. Keep believing. Keep faithing in me. And shockingly, Jairus does. Whatever faith is left in Jairus, there is faith left in Jairus because he takes Jesus to his house. And Jesus goes into the house. He goes to the l- little girl who is dead on, on the bed, and you get this funny language translation bit here, the talitha kumi, and you're like, why is that there? It's an Aramaic phrase. That's what Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Mark is recording this for a Roman audience, and he's got to translate it into the Greek, uh, but he's doing this to make a point. He includes it. Uh, and, and the English translators, they translate it, little girl, arise. It, it, it's a term of endearment. Like you might, like, like the way you might wake up your little child parents, or, or you know, if you remember your parents and, and you know, when you're, when you're in a good place, you know, and it's not the get up because my ch- children won't get up. But, you know, if you've got that, if you're in a good place and you go, you know, you go up to your jaw, you, you know, what do you say? You say something like, you know, sweetie, it's time to get up. And Jesus says it like that because he's God and because he is the creator of all things. And Jairus' daughter is just as much his little girl. And then more than her creator, Jesus is also this little girl's redeemer. And so you see the gospel here pictured in the touch. Because the girl is dead, which means like the woman, this little girl is unclean. And you can't, you cannot touch someone who has died without becoming unclean. For Jesus to bring this girl back from the dead and give her new life, this is a picture. Jesus will have to become unclean, and that's what all the miracles are about. That's what all the miracles reveal. They re, they reveal the gospel because what the miracles are, they are <clears throat> this inbreaking. Every single miracle is in an inbreaking of what we could call the restorative powers that are going to produce uh, the new heavens, new earth. It's, it's the, total, the total healing involved <clears throat> in resurrection and in our glorification and in the, the making of new heavens, new earth. That power gets intruded here, symbolically pointing ahead to something, but really truly into earth's history beforehand in the ministry of Jesus, in his miracles let me see. the restorative powers that are going to produce the new heavens new earth they break through into time and space in jesus miracles as a promise of that paradise that is going to come that physical spiritual paradise that is going to come I mean you can think of you can think of this inbreaking from two perspectives if this is helpful to you you can think of it like, like as in heaven exists right now right yes heaven exists right now this is an intrusion it's a projection of it's a down uh, from that presently heavenly realm up there into this earthly realm down here. So it's a spatial intrusion. Uh, you could also think of it as a temporal intrusion. It's a breaking in of the future. When Jesus comes back in final judgment to bring judgment and the new heavens, new earth, the miracles of Jesus, it's, a symb- it's symbolic of the breaking in of heaven, both spatially and temporally in anticipation of the final kingdom reality that is coming. So the miracles are this promise, this promise of our great need and our great savior. And we come full circle with these two miracles. They have everything to do with each other. It says this woman has been suffering from this flow of blood for 12 years. And because of her blood flow, she has been isolated from public worship. The ceremonial laws, they said, if you were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, it meant you were unfit, you were unacceptable in the presence of God. As weird as those are, as weird as the ceremonial laws are, they all had the same purpose, though. This, this was one way for God to show his people that they were sinners, that they were not acceptable in his presence, and it's impossible to make ourselves acceptable in his presence. For 12 years, this woman carried this. And, and I don't, you know, think about what you were doing 12 years ago. I was in ministry 12 years ago, so it feels like, yeah, you know, 12 years ago was 12 years ago. I felt better 12 years ago, but it doesn't feel like that long ago. Uh, okay, so in some sense, 12 years might not feel that long, but what this is trying to show us is this. Remember how old the little girl is. The little girl that died, she's 12 years old. To that little girl, 12 years is a lifetime. This woman, 12 years of uncleanness, it is a picture of a lifetime of sin. The little dead 12-year-old girl is a picture of the results of a sinful life because death is the penalty for our sin. The crowd believed that there was something pure inside them because of what they did or because of what they didn't do. Uh, th- but there's only ever been one person who's pure, who's ever lived. Jesus allows this unclean woman to touch him, and he touches this little dead girl because on the cross, he's going to take all of their uncleanness, all of their sin on himself. And it's So what for us here, it, it, like... You are not cleansed of your sin because of anything you do, because of anything you don't do. This purity culture thing of you are not pure before God because of anything that is inside of you. You are cleansed through the life and the death of Jesus. Jesus' miracles, they're these pictures, they're these foreshadowings of what he is going to do on the cross because the cross is the ultimate intrusion of final judgment and salvation in history. On the cross, Jesus takes not part of your sin. He takes it all. He takes your lifetime of sin on the cross, and he pays the penalty for it. He doesn't just take your death. He takes your death death, your forever death. That, That thing of hell, he takes that punishment for you, and he overcomes all of it in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And this is the one you're supposed to be, this is the one you're supposed to put your faith in, this is the one you're supposed to keep faithing in. Uh, As in, uh, you know, it's this thing of, you could say, I don't trust myself, I know my temptations, I know my weaknesses, I don't think I'm cut out to be a Christian. Okay, the gospel does not say to believe in yourself. The gospel does not say believe in you. The gospel says believe in Jesus and keep believing in Jesus. And it it may be this thought of, like, me, a Christian. I don't know. I don't like Christians. Okay, the gospel doesn't say to believe in Christians. The gospel says believe in Jesus and keep believing in Jesus. And then it may be this thing of, okay, wait, I don't like the church. Uh, It's full of hypocrites. The church has burned me before. Okay, the gospel does not say to put your faith and keep faithing in the church. The gospel says to believe in Jesus and to keep believing in Jesus. And do you need the church? And do you need other Christians? Yes, because that's how Jesus has made it. He saves you and he saves us to be to hold on to this faith together in him, which allows us to love each other with that grace. Uh, pastors, theologians have been saying this for a long time. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. That's not what the world says. One of my favorite writers once said this it doesn't matter what you believe, just so long as you're sincere. That's not right. That's wrong. It's that thing of, I don't care what you believe, just believe. That doesn't make any sense. And here's the big challenge with faith you have to believe, and you have to believe in Jesus. You got to get desperate. And you've got to hear that this Jesus is for you. And, and like the, the Greek original puts it, you've got to faith it. And you've got to keep faithing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come and, uh, and we come truly in, in our heart uh, posture before you. Uh, we come kneeling before you and, and we do cry out that you are Lord. You are our Savior, that we are in desperate need of you. That you've done what we cannot do, and we still need you. We need you today, and we need you tomorrow, and we need you to come back. And we need you to fix everything, finally and fully, that is wrong with us and wrong with this world. We know that you are already at work in us. We know that you have already saved us, that nothing can steal that salvation from us. We can say here together that we know that. Lord, it is hard to persevere in that faith. We can't do it alone. Bless us to love and serve one another in such a way that we are pointing each other to Christ, to our Lord and Savior, who has done what we cannot do, who is with us right now, who will see this salvation to the very end. Help us to look at these miracles and know that heaven is coming. We thank you for being our Lord and Savior. We thank you for being a God of grace. And it's in our Lord and Savior's name that we pray, amen.